A'udhu Billah Minash Shaitan Al-Ain Al-Rajim Bismillah Ar-Rahman Ar-Rahim In the name of God, most merciful, ever merciful And may God's peace and blessings be upon His Holy Prophet Muhammad And the purified members of his household and progeny Allahumma salli ala Muhammad wa ali Muhammad wa ajjil farajahum Brothers, sisters and respected viewers Wherever, you're, wherever you may be Assalamu alaikum wa rahmatullahi wa barakatuh and thank you once again for joining us in this series entitled Life, the Islamic Answer, in which, as you remember, we began a topic uh, to address the importance and the place of knowledge and aql, deep reflection, thinking, intellect, reason, rationality in Islam. And so, uh, as you remember, in the last time that we met, we were at the point of trying to understand why Islam has given this type of importance to both knowledge and aql. And this was, of course, after we spent a little bit of time really establishing the importance of knowledge first, and then the importance of aql and explaining also a little bit of the relationship between the two. And then we said, how come Islam gives this type of importance that would be very difficult to imagine for anything else, something that is absolutely unmatched in importance. And so, in order to do this, while the first part was always uh, focused on the narrations of the Holy Prophet and Ahlul Bayt and their narrations, in this uh, answer specifically about why and the justification behind the importance, we tried to focus a little bit more on the Holy Qur'an. And as we said, this is not only going to allow us to answer the question why, but also re-establish and reconfirm everything that we have said from the beginning of the series, given the extremely rich density of meanings in the verses of the Holy Qur'an where we find the teachings as well as the justifications presented. So we said that we were doing both, confirming everything that we have presented based on the ahadith, while at the same time also trying to answer this new question which is why has Islam given this type of unmatched importance to knowledge and aql? And we said that we can group the verses of the Holy Qur'an that address this topic uh, in a number of categories. The first one has to do with the intrinsic value of knowledge and the intrinsic value of aql, so their value in themselves. And we saw a number of verses that clearly explain that both knowledge and aql have a value on their own without having to add anything external to them, in themselves, they are good and they are desirable. And we said this also entails, as we showed later in the verses of the Holy Qur'an, it also entails that the human being is intuitively and naturally able to recognize that this intrinsic value and this intrinsic goodness of both knowledge and aql. And so when the Holy Qur'an establishes this, when Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala establishes 
that they are good in themselves and therefore desirable. This is something that a human being should be able to recognize uh, intuitively or with a little bit of help, uh, but we are hardwired this way as human beings. And so this was the first category of verses that spoke about the why. Why is it that our religion has given this type of importance to both knowledge and aql? The first answer to this is that, as we said, the first answer to this is that they carry an intrinsic value. They carry a value in themselves. The second group of verses that we spoke about were verses that explained that knowledge and aql, both of them, have a certain sacredness. There is a holiness or, or a sanctity, a dimension of sacredness to the uh, reality or to the nature of knowledge and of uh, aql. Uh, and this can be looked at from a variety of reasons. We're not talking about all of them, we're talking about some of them. But we already started to see that one of the reasons why both knowledge and aql are considered sacred is because they have their source in Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala. And he attributes these things to himself first and foremost. And so Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala not only says that he is the source of knowledge and the source of our aql, but in fact that he even plays the role of the teacher. He is the first teacher, as we saw in the Holy Quran. And so this gives an additional layer of meaning to what we've been talking about and this function of teaching, so this function of receiving knowledge and of imparting knowledge or sharing knowledge with others. And so there's a sacredness to that. And then we also looked at it from the point of view of the prophets and the function that they perform, including our own Prophet Muhammad in which the Holy Quran clearly states and explains that one of the main functions for which prophets are sent is to teach is to impart knowledge to human beings and to their nations. And then we said that there is another big group. So this was the first grouping of verses. So this first grouping of the verses had to do with when we look at knowledge in itself and aql in itself, and we saw that it has a value, an intrinsic value in itself, one, and two, that it has a certain holiness. And then beyond that, we said there are also, we, we called them functional reasons. And these are the reasons that are based on the idea that knowledge and aql are used for specific purposes, for specific objectives. They allow the human being to reach certain purposes. And because of that, they gain an additional importance. And we split those into two big categories. The first one we said has to do with the purpose of human existence ultimately. And we said this ultimate purpose of human existence can only truly be understood in the afterlife. No one amongst us is capable of truly understanding the worth, the value, the merit uh, of a human being and to what extent they were actually able to fulfill their humanity fully in this world. So all of this remains, of course, in the eyes of Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala in this world, but unseen to us. What we see in this world is the apparent and the superficial. And so we must 
for this part rely on the afterlife in which everyone is going to be raised based on their true nature and the humanity that they were able to actually fulfill in this world. And so all of the reasons that we mentioned here had to do with the afterlife, the true worth, the true merit, the true value of a human being, what they are capable of achieving, of reaching. And so, of course, we here spoke about, for instance, acquiring religious teachings. So the reason why we acquire, the, one of the reasons why aql and knowledge become so important is because they allow us to understand our uh, function or our uh, tasks and duties and responsibilities in this world through the religious teachings. But religious teachings in themselves bring us to a higher level of uh, humanity. And this is what allows us to uh, even look at certain verses of the Holy Qur'an in which the verses themselves, while they explain that these are the limitations, these are the restrictions, these are the laws of Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala, it also says that this is being explained to you so that you may think, so that you may reflect, so that you may use your aql. And so this is where we see that there is even a higher purpose than just the obedience itself. And, and slowly, as we began to look at various verses of the Holy Qur'an, we saw that this is actually what allows a human being to acquire a higher level of merit. It's that you have this knowledge and your ability to reflect deeply. And we saw that this includes a number of you know, sub-topics uh, that we talked about. For instance, the importance of ensuring that when you believe in something, that this is not based on conjecture or following blindly others. Because this is the only worth behind belief. Belief in itself does not lead to anything, but belief based on the fact that it was based on knowledge and using your aql means that you elevated yourself as a human being. Otherwise, you're biologically a human being, but no different than every other animal. And we belong to the animal kingdom in that sense if we are unable to exercise those higher functions that we have been granted. And so we said, uh, where we ran out of time, or where we stopped, was at this fourth category. So we said, beyond the nature of knowledge and aql, that they have an intrinsic value in themselves, one, and two, that they carry a certain holiness. The second category is for the purposes which they allow the human being to achieve, to fulfill. And so on one side, as we just explained, we have the ultimate purposes, which the human being can only achieve and can only really see and, and uh, observe and, and ex experience in the afterlife. And then we have the intermediary purposes. And so these are the purposes that we can see and achieve and work on in this world. And this was the last category. So knowledge and aql are not only recognized for the purposes that they allow us to achieve for the afterlife and for our ultimate purpose, the real reason for which we were created. But there are also intermediary reasons. And those, ultimately, when we combine them together, they combine into living in this world. This world is not created for itself. And yet we see that knowledge and aql will play an important role in allowing the human being to live their life in this world. 
which of course will open the door and inshallah we'll come back to that topic later and in much more detail of understanding the importance that Islam gives to this world and that it is important not to neglect it, not to ignore it. And so there is a recognition of the role of knowledge and of the role of aql, not only for the ultimate purposes which it allows us to achieve for the afterlife, but also for the purposes that it allows us to achieve in this world. And so today, inshallah, we're focusing only on this part. And so in the first um, group of verses, we have a, a couple of, of samples here. We talk about the methodology that Islam has used itself. When Islam was revealed, it was not revealed all in one shot. There was a certain methodology. There was a certain process for very good reasons, and people are still studying those reasons until today, to understand why Islam was revealed the way it was revealed. We can look at the events, we can look at the timelines, we can look at a variety of factors, but Islam was revealed over, over two decades in very, very different contexts and circumstances. Uh, and when we study them, we see that there were very good reasons for that. And with all of this said, when we look at the verses of the Holy Quran, we get a, a clear understanding of this, no matter which of the important topics we look at in Islam, and one of them, no exception to this, are the topics of knowledge and aql. So when we come to the first verses, and we've mentioned this in the past, when we come to the first verses that were revealed to the Holy Prophet, and we can consider these the verses that began the Islamic mission, the advent of Islam, the bringing about of Islam into this world began with these verses. And so this has to be looked at this time. And this is why we're talking about these verses now to focus on this point specifically. We want to look at it from the point of view of a methodology. And of course, inshallah, I will invite you at the end, uh, if we have a bit of time in our discussion, to think about what this means for us today what it means for a good Muslim trying to live their life Islamically, based on Islamic principles. What does it mean to say that Islam began with these types of verses? So we have the first grouping of verses that unanimously are recognized as the first five verses revealed. If they were not the first, they were certainly among the first of the verses revealed. Perhaps Surah Al-Fatiha was revealed before or not. There are some discussions about exactly which, but the majority opinion is certainly that the verses, the first five verses of Surah Al-Alaq, were the first verses revealed. Bismillah ar-Rahman ar-Rahim. Iqra' Bismi rabbika al-ladhi khalaq khalaq al-insana min alaq. Iqra' wa rabbuka al-akram al-ladhi allama bil-qalam allama al-insana ma'alam ya'alam. The verses begin with the word read or recite. We often say recite, but the truth is, if we translate it literally, Iqra is read. The first verse revealed to the Holy Prophet would have been read. In the name of your Lord, then uh, of your Lord who created, he created the human being from a clot of blood or clinging clot of blood. Read once again, uh, and your Lord who is the most gracious, the one who taught by the pen. 
And so again, we spoke a little bit about this, this importance of not to come back too much on the points to where the Holy Quran attributes the function of teaching first and foremost to Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala, alladhi allama bilqalam. And then the Quran makes a point to mention the instrument. The instrument of writing, the pen, is mentioned explicitly in the verses, He taught the human being that which he did not know. So these, this was the first set of verses. And then the second one, and very closely associated with this, Surah Al-Qalam. Surah Al-Qalam was most likely the verse that was revealed right after Surah Al-Alaq, or one of the chapters that were revealed right after. And uh, again, Surah Al-Qalam begins, first of all, the name of Surah Al-Qalam is Al-Qalam. Again, the pen. And then the, the surah begins with Noon, the first verse, Noon, Wal-Qalami, Wama Yasturun. And so this Wa, as soon as Noon, Wa, Al-Qalam, this is Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala swearing by the pen and by that which they write, by that which they inscribe. So it is not clear in the verse itself who is they and what are they writing, but there's certainly something great enough that Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala swears by it. Just as when we swear, we swear, but we swear by Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala, Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala swears by things that are great, that are worthy of Him swearing by them. And so He says, Noon wal-qalami wa ma By, Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala says by, I swear by the pen, and by that which, wal-qalami alaykum salam wa rahmatullah, wal-qalami wa ma and by that which they write. And then the answer of the qasam, the answer of the swear, مَا أَنْتَ بِنِعْمَةِ رَبِّكَ بِمَجْنُونَ So when Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala swears, I swear, why? Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala answers all of these reasons. مَا أَنْتَ بِنِعْمَةِ رَبِّكَ بِمَجْنُونَ مَا أَنْتَ So you are certainly not, by the blessing of your Lord, majnoon, a madman or a crazy man, as they claim, right? وَإِمْنَ لَكَ لَأَجْرًا غَيْرَ مَمْنُونَ And you will certainly have an unending or an everlasting reward. And you are certainly of a most sublime character. So you shall see and they shall see who amongst you is the one who is afflicted. As they claim you are afflicted. So all of this goes together. But our focus, our point is that the, the first verses once again began with the pen. The pen and by that which they inscribe, that which they write. So again, there is an insistence in our religion right from the beginning on reading and writing and the instruments that go with them. And so it's not only reading and writing, but by the pen and that which they inscribe so that you can read it and you can write it. So this is the first group of verses that I thought I would share because they specifically talk about, as we called it, the methodology. This deserves some thinking on our part. What does it mean that when our religion was first revealed, it began with, these, with this type of instruction? Read and write. And the importance of teaching and the importance of the pen and the importance of writing. What was happening here? What is Islam trying to say? And it, especially if we try to put ourselves back in that type of context. And the, to what extent does that apply to us today? Can we apply that context to ourselves, 
for me as a person, just on my own? Can this apply to me or not? And then, can it apply to me as a community? Can it apply to me and in my role in society? What does this mean for me? So that's the first group of verses. The second group of verses I thought I would talk about are the verses that, in my mind, and inshallah you will see it too, are basically the verses that, as we said, we're talking about the verses that explain the intermediary purposes or living in this world. And I think there's a number of verses in the Holy Quran that talk about how knowledge is used to get by in life. And a lot of the big things that we talk about, just the big tasks, the big functions, to be able to accomplish your duties, to be able to go after your goals, you need knowledge. So knowledge is playing this role not only for the afterlife, but for this world, you need to acquire knowledge. Okay, and so some verses that have to do with this, and I thought I would focus a little bit here on the stories of the prophets where we see a lot of this in their stories. And this is for any purpose and any function. Sometimes it's used well. I wanted to use one where it's not used well, but you can still see that it is used. Okay, there's a recognition of its importance, but it's misused. In the first verse, we have someone by the name of Qarun. The Holy Quran talks about a man who was in the, in the nation of Prophet Musa salam. He was a very good man. And then because of the wealth that he got, he turned completely bad. The wealth got to him. He became arrogant. And then he started working and using his wealth and his power against Prophet Musa salam. And so Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala at the end of the story, he makes the earth basically swallow him. The earth completely uh, uh, crumbles under him and his entire wealth and he disappears as a punishment from Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala because he was defying Musa And so at some point there is a dialogue as his people start to see how he starts to behave and how the arrogance is really trying, starting to get to him. There, is, there are dialogues that happen in Surah Al-Qasas. If you're interested, go towards the very end of Surah Al-Qasas. You have the full story. It reads very easily and very well. It's beautifully, uh, beautifully explained. Then there is this verse that when they talk to him, he says, قَالَ إِنَّمَا أُوْتِيتُهُ عَلَىٰ عِلْمٍ عِنْدِي When he starts talking about his wealth, he says, I have been granted, I have been given this wealth عَلَىٰ عِلْمٍ عِنْدِي Because of a knowledge that I have, I was able to achieve this success. I was able to achieve all of this wealth. So the Holy Quran answers him. Does he not know that Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala destroyed in the previous generations or in the previous you know, centuries of people, those who had amassed even more than he had and who had even more power than he had gathered? So he got a certain amount of wealth, a certain amount of, and it was truly, the Holy Quran says that this his wealth was magnificent. It took powerful groups of men to carry the wealth. And in the narrations we have, and the hadith Ahl al-Bayt tell us that the keys, just the keys to open all of his treasuries had to be carried on dozens upon dozens of camels. Just the keys to open the treasuries, not the wealth itself. This is the type of wealth that he had amassed and gathered, and so it got to him. And it's not an easy test. Some of us are tested with a little bit of wealth. This is why there is always, this is a big topic. We're not going to talk about it now. 
But this big topic of why is this, there's a constant reminder of, you know, staying away from wealth, staying away from wealth. Wealth opens doors that you never thought you were going to have to deal with. And then suddenly, when, you know, that wealth was not there, you never had access to certain things. But with the wealth, for instance, you take a very simple example. Someone who is too poor is not really going to be worried about what type of food they're going after because they're focusing on the necessities. But someone who has all the money in the world, they get to choose and decide whatever they feel like eating. And then suddenly, something that was haram becomes part of the picture. And now I have to exercise my discipline. Do I go for it or do I not go for it? This was not a problem when I didn't have money. The money, as good as it is, and it will allow me to deal with a lot of things much better and much much more easily. It gives me more power to become better. Every time you have something given to you, it comes with this side effect and this secondary uh, uh, kind of door that opens to you that now you have to see how are you going to use it and are you going to have the discipline to use it properly. And all of us, at some point, we fall into the test. For some of us, you know, the test is going to be after the first $10,000 and for someone else is going to be after the first $10 million. It doesn't matter. Each one of us is going to have their test and some of us are going to be tested with wealth, and some of us are going to be tested with lack of wealth. You're going to be tested with poverty, and you're going to be tested with richness. And this is the whole point, to, to see, do you understand that this is all part of seeing how you behave once you are put in that situation? Does it really change you, or do you stay true to your values and what you know to be the truth? And so here the idea that we wanted to focus on is simply that when the verse says this, it doesn't say that there is no place for knowledge. It might be very true. Qarun probably did use some of his knowledge in order to gain this type of wealth. He exercised that knowledge. The issue is that this in itself is not the problem. The problem is that this made him mistakenly think that there is no Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala anymore. As if just because I use my knowledge, I will automatically get the certain result. If I work hard, as we are brainwashed and told constantly every day in today's world, you work hard, you get the results. No, not necessarily. You may or you may not. Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala may intervene and test you. Two people put in the same amount of work and one person gets much more result than the other person. We don't control all the factors. And someone will not put a lot of work in and they will get much higher results. And someone will put a lot of work in and they will get much... Why? It's because it's not an automatic uh, 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 mathematical equation, chemical equation where this leads to that in every case without fault. That's not how it works. If that's how it would work, then there is no Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala in the equation. And so what he failed to see is that, and this is a mistake that it's very subtle, but we have to try to fight it and not fall into this mistake thinking that just because I have put in the work, it automatically means that whatever success I have is entirely because of my own effort. No, there's Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala and the blessings that He is granted, granting you with. You don't even understand everything going on behind the scenes that is leading to you getting this specific blessing or this wealth. And the opposite. When something does not go your way, not you cannot always say it's necessarily because of your own failing. There might be a test in it for you. And part of the test is being able to see that and recognize that and not fall for it and not fall for being depressed. And we talked a lot about that 
in Shah Ramadan when we talked about the will of Imam Ali alayhi salam, when he tells his sons, La ta'safa ala shay'in zuya minha ankuma. Right? Do not get depressed and do not get sad because something in this world has been moved away from you. Don't worry about that. Sometimes it's for your own good, but you don't see it. Sometimes it's part of the test and it will only make you better and stronger. So don't get depressed and stay in that type of attitude. In the next verse, in Surah Yusuf, Yusuf السلام, at some point, after he was thrown into the well, and then he was jailed, and then, and then, finally, he is talking to the king of the land. And so when they see the type of knowledge that he carries, he wants to do something with him. It would go to waste not to use all this knowledge that this person has. So Prophet Yusuf السلام, and of course, this man was not a believer. This was the king of the land. And Yusuf السلام, is a prophet of God. Did he say, I don't have anything to do with you? I'm going to go home and close my door and worship Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala? No. He saw that now he has an opportunity based on his competence, based on his areas of expertise to influence, to do good in the world through the window of opportunity that he has. So when this happened, when these events happened, he told the king, If you want to use me for something, I'm going to tell you where to use me. Use me on the treasuries of the land. So basically he's the the minister responsible for the revenue and minister responsible for the economy. Right? The treasuries of your lands make me responsible and accountable for them. I'll deal with that and I will help you greatly. And he did. Right? And he saved them afterwards. This is right after and during the years of famine that ensued and all of that. And they were saved because of the wisdom of Yusuf And this is where you see the positive role that he played. And through that, now they want to bring him closer. He doesn't believe in what they believe in. He has a different lifestyle and a different thinking. But he saw himself an opportunity to come in and help. And they recognized that too because of his manners, because of his knowledge. And here there's something that we really need to focus on. He didn't tell him I'm a really good guy. And Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala loves me and I'm really good at worshipping Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala. He told him, you're going to put me there because of my competence, because of my specialization. You want to use me, use me in my area of specialty, which means that we have to work on our areas of specialty and become damn good in them so that it is recognized automatically in our field that we are an authority, that we are someone everybody wants to work with or learn from or put in positions of power. And then we can use that for the good. For the greater good. And this is what Prophet Yusuf did. When he said, put me in charge of the country's treasuries, for I am trustworthy, knowledgeable. Right? This is the knowledge, the key of knowledge. Which is expected of all of us to be trustworthy. We don't lie, we don't cheat, we don't steal. This is the kind of person you want in that kind of position. I have access to all the money and all the wealth, and I will not use it for my personal gain, Alim. And I have the knowledge that goes with doing a good job in that duty, in that position. And then in Surah Al-Anbiya, 
we have verses that talk about Prophet Dawood and Prophet Sulaiman In this verse, so this is 21. I apologize for the previous verses. I didn't give you the quotes. Surah Al-Qasas 78 for Qarun and for Prophet Yusuf This was in verse 55 of Surah Yusuf, 1255. Dawood and Sulaiman Surah Al-Anbiya, verses 79, 80. And so we taught, and then it continues, This part I'm going to skip. And we taught him a craft. And we taught him a certain craft, which is what? Making garments to protect you from your own harms. So then will you be grateful? This is what the verse says. What was this craft of making garments? And what is this protecting against your own harms? We're told that Dawood was inspired by Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala or taught by Allah. Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala says, We taught him. What? To make for you garments to protect you from your own harms, from your own evils. Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala taught him to make shields. Human beings are going to war and to battle with each other and killing themselves. And so you see this role that Prophet Dawood plays so that people, at least when they're going into battle, he minimizes the violence happening because now you're wearing a metal shield. And so he is the first. Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala says, we taught him to make these garments, these shields of metal to protect you against your own harms. You're harming each other through these battles and through this violence. We taught him to make these shields so that it minimizes this violence amongst you. Right? Will you be grateful? And this is where we have to take it to the next level. This is one example. God knows how many of these examples there are where these big discoveries or these big turning points in humanity happen at the hands of prophets, but we don't know. We think that humanity just evolved by itself on its own. When in fact, in a lot of cases, and these are just little examples, who knows how much influence Prophet Yusuf played once he was in that position? And how much since then, for the past four or five thousand years, since that time, governments have learned to work because of the way that he worked? Or because of what Prophet Dawood did? How much did it push humanity ahead in its timeline? How many years did that one invention save? And how many lives did it save? And this is where, you know, there are people who sometimes say, what's the point of religion? And what's the point of prophets? Well, these are some of the roles that they play that we usually don't focus on. The good that they bring into their societies for this world. Because that's not the main purpose. The main purpose from sending these prophets is so that humanity is guided for their afterlife. This stuff humanity is supposed to be able to achieve on its own. But at least with these inventions, we know that it kind of fast forwards, fast tracks humanity and in a very positive way. In, and of course today, you know, I would say this was kind of a military sciences kind of thing. If we were to put it in a specific category, we would say this was done. In, and so this is something that maybe we can generalize. We probably all are able to look at what's happening in the world and to see, can I contribute in a way that would minimize harm? 
Sometimes I can do something that will bring in the good, but minimizing the harm can be as good if this is all I have access to. So can I at least do that? And we talked about this where Imam Ali alayhi salam says the aql is not a being able to recognize good from bad. This is a very superficial level. This is an easy level of aql. True aql is the ability to distinguish and to identify the better of two bads, the better of two evils. And sometimes we are in these situations where there are no good, easy options. They're all bad options. So your aql is your ability to recognize which one minimizes the badness, the evil of that of these options. In Surah Al-Baqarah 2-247, we have the story of, again, it was Prophet Dawood but in, at this point in the story, it's a story of Talut. So you have Bani Israel who need to go into battle. They ask the Prophet, their Prophet, to to have Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala assign a king for them to lead them into this battle. So Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala قَالَ لَهُمْ نَبِيُّهُمْ إِنَّ اللَّهَ قَدْ بَعْثَ لَكُمْ طَالُوتَ مَلِكًا Their Prophet told them, Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala has sent for you Talut, Shal, as a king. قَالُوا أَنَّا يَكُونُ لَهُ الْمُلْكِ And there's a key here. They objected. They didn't like the king that Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala assigned for them. Why? They came up with their own criteria. The criteria that they used socially to determine who is great and who isn't. Their criteria is wealth. The person who becomes the head of a group has to be the person who is the wealthiest in their mentality. And of course, this is something we have to apply in our world today. What do we do? What do I do in my world, in my little head, when I'm assessing someone? What criteria am I using? And is it the right criteria or not for, for the objective that I'm looking for? What should I be looking for? In some cases, we give a lot of importance just to popularity. We give importance to wealth. We give importance to, yeah, but what's the function I'm looking for from this person? What am I really needing from this person? And we do the same thing in families, we do the same thing in communities, we do the same thing in societies. So we have to keep that in mind. What's the criteria that we use to establish whether someone should be in a certain position or not? Is it the right one or not? And you'll see how far the Quran goes here. So they object. They say, How can kingdom be his? When he has not been given an abundance of wealth. That's the criteria. So what's the response of their Prophet, he tells them, قَالَ إِنَّ اللَّهِ إِصْطَفَاهُ عَلَيْكُمْ First, Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala has chosen him. That should be enough. Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala is telling you, this is the person you follow. You like them, you don't like them, you think they're too old, they're too young. If you know for sure, and in this case, they know for sure, there is no doubt, their Prophet is talking to them. He is telling them, Allah has chosen this person. Whether you like him or not, this person has been chosen, nominated, assigned by God for you. Okay? But as usual, and as we saw in many verses, Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala is more gracious than this. He will come back and tell you, and there is a very good reason, trust me, for choosing this person. It's not just because I said so. When that should be enough, because it's God. But he said no. So he explains to them why it's this person, and why not someone else. He tells them, إِنَّ اللَّهَ اصْطَفَاهُ عَلَيْكُمْ 
وزاده بسطة في العلم والجسم and he has given him an expansion he has given him an abundance in two things he has given him an abundance in جسم and in علم in knowledge and in physical strength why? because he needs to lead them in battle and those are the criteria that Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala wanted this person to have so that they have the best chance. He, find the, he found the perfect person for them for this specific role. There is a type of knowledge this person needs to have. And because he's leading them into battle, into war, and he is truly their leader, then he's going to be ahead of them. And if he is the strongest amongst them, that's even greater, that's even better. And that's who Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala chose. And their prophet is recognizing this. And no one can dispute that. So this is where you see this idea that we just talked about in Prophet Yusuf You see it again. This is the idea of the competence. This is the idea that it's based on your qualification. This person was chosen, Palut was chosen. Yes, Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala selected him. But he also selected him based on a very specific criteria that made him the most competent for this. Physical strength and knowledge. And once again, knowledge. There's a specialization. This could be military knowledge. I don't know. But he had a certain knowledge that allowed him to become, and he was the most suitable of them to become their king. Until the end. And then there are a few examples. And I'm going to go a little bit faster here. I was hoping to have enough time for a bit of a discussion today. And if we have time, maybe we take a 20-25 minutes for the martyrdom of Imam al-Baqir at the end, if you're interested. A quick overview of the life of Imam al-Baqir A few examples from the Holy Qur'an. The points of these examples, it's difficult not to focus in these examples on the content. Okay? There are many examples in the Holy Qur'an that talk about specialized types of knowledge. The knowledge in itself is amazing. In fact, many of us, all of us, I would think, we consider it as part of the miraculous nature and to prove the miraculousness of the Holy Quran. So the point of these types of knowledge that we're going to go through, they establish the miraculous nature of the Holy Quran from multiple angles, more than one. And you'll see that in the verses. What I'm trying to get you to focus on is to go one level beyond that. So don't focus just on this specific type of knowledge. When we began this, this topic of the why and we said we're going to look at the verses of the Qur'an, we said sometimes the verses of the Qur'an, they instruct us clearly. They say, this is the reason why something is important. But sometimes it's indirect. So here the question is, why would Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala talk about these things? That's my question to you. As we go through them, ask yourselves, why is Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala bringing up these types of examples? Is it for the knowledge? Is it so that people know this thing specifically? Or are these examples of something? And is there something expected of us in terms of actions? Because these examples are what they are. Okay, and we'll come back to it at the end. That's all I wanted to say before we go through some verses. We have verses in the Holy Quran that seem to focus on history, and today we call it archaeology. This field where we study the artifacts of previous nations, and we try to kind of recompile and reconstruct how they lived and where they lived and how many of them, and 
their level of technology, and so on and so forth. Look at these verses from the Holy Quran. Surah Al-A'raf 7-176. Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala says at the end of a certain story, the story of Bal'am bin Ba'ura, we don't have time to, to go through it now. He says at the end, فَقْصُصِ الْقَصَصَ لَعَلَّهُمْ يَتَفَكَّرُونَ so Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala is telling the Holy Prophet, so tell the tales, tell the stories. Which stories? The stories of the Holy Quran is sharing with the people. Recite these stories to them. Is it just because they're really cool, interesting stories and become bestsellers? No, this is not fiction. There's a reason behind them. The reason is so that they may reflect. When the Holy Quran talks about history or history slash archaeology today because we can take it further and we're going to see what the Quran says there's a reason behind it. It's supposed to help us reflect. But already we're touching on a topic that we didn't want to talk about yet. We'll come back to it. But today we're talking about it for sure, partially. The question that we had, which type of knowledge We've been talking about the importance of knowledge and we have this question from a number of, of the brothers and, and participants in these. Which knowledge? Okay, knowledge is important, so which knowledge? Well, now we have an example. What else does the Qur'an say? In Surah Muhammad 47.10, it says, أَفَلَمْ يَسِيرُوا فِي الْأَرْضِ فَيَنْظُرُوا كَيْفَ كَانَ عَاقِبَةُ الَّذِينَ مَنْ قَبْلِهِمْ أَفَلَمْ يَسِيرُوا Have they not journeyed upon the earth? so that they may consider the fate of those who were before them. On one side, one way to understand this is to see, is to simply say, the Qur'an is saying, well, they're traveling the land, are they not seeing? That's one, that's one interpretation. The other interpretation is, will they not travel the land? Will they not go out and out of their way and become experts in history and experts in archaeology and dig up and study and understand what happened to the peoples who were before them, to the nations that were before them. There's almost a call for action here. It's almost like the verse is saying they need to do this. They need to journey the land and do this type of studying so that they understand what happened. That's part of this whole system and what we've given you access to, and the knowledge and the tools and the understanding, so that you may understand, and therefore, again, so that you may reflect. In another verse, and there's a lot of these verses in the Quran, in Surah Al-An'am, verse 6, Have they not considered? So here, I would say, I would translate as, will they not study? Okay, that's just between us. Will they not study? Have they not considered how many a generation we have destroyed before them, whom we had established on earth more firmly than we established you? And we sent the sky upon them with abundant rains and made rivers flow beneath them. Then we destroyed them for their sins and brought forth into being a new generation after them. This, inshallah, we'll come back to it later. We'll talk about a little bit about history and the importance of studying history. But is this not the entire cycle of what you know has become known in history? There was a period where historians were really focused on this idea of the rise and fall of civilizations. What makes civilizations rise? 
What are the factors that you put together and then you have a civilization? At what makes them decline and then fall and then disappear? Where are the Romans today? They're no longer there. Where are the Persians? Where are the Greeks? These are civilizations that no longer exist. What happened to them? What led to their rise? And then what led to their demise? And inshallah, we'll talk about that. And some of our you know, big thinkers in Islam have also focused on this. Ibn Khaldun and others, this is a lot of their focus was there. But you see it very clearly in the Quran. So is this not a call to study the factors? You, we, we want to be part of a society that rises. We want to be a part of a society that is successful, that we become a civilization, that we last and do not decline. And I talked about this a few lectures ago, how I explained that clearly we declined. And clearly we are no longer holding any level of prominence or leadership in the world in all those areas in which we were leading the world. And we can tell very clearly and very specifically when some of this started to happen. And everybody knows, the social, people who are sociologists and historians and others, they, they know the factors. We know the factors that led to the rise and the fall. Is this not a call from the Holy Quran to specialize in these areas and to understand them and then apply? It's not a matter of you understand them and nothing happens. It's so that you apply it. These have to become principles that you apply in your life. And then the different sciences. So we had history and we have archaeology, for instance. And then we have, for instance, the embryology. When the Quran talks about, and there's a number of different verses that talk about how the fetus is formed in the womb and different aspects of this. In Surah Al-Anbiya, we have one in verses 12 to 14. وَلَقَدْ خَلَقْنَا Indeed, we created the human being from an extract of clay. So there's a lot to say here, but and this is you know one possible interpretation: an extract of clay. Then we made him a drop of fluid in a secure dwelling. So this is the womb, right? Then from the drop of fluid, we created a clinging blood clot. Then of the clinging blood clot, we created a chewed lump of flesh, al-mudghah. Al-mudghah is to chew. Al-mudghah, that's why they say, if today you look at the, uh, an image of a fetus, it really looks like take a piece of gum and chew it once and you will see the the marks of your teeth on it and then look at the picture of the fetus and you will see that it looks exactly like a chewed piece of gum okay and so, some say this is the meaning behind this in any case it's a lump al-mudra is a lump of meat okay so a lump of flesh then of the lump of flesh we created bones then we clothed the bones with flesh, then we originated him into yet another creation. Right? And the, in our narrations, this is when we're told, this is the soul enters the body. The human being is becoming more than just a biological living entity. Now it's becoming a human being. Okay? This is, and it happens very directly, and it's mentioned in fiqh, what happens after the four months and before the four months. Right? ثُمَّ أَنْشَأْنَاهُ خَلْقًا آخر فتبارك الله. This is when 
This is because the soul has entered. So Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala says, فَتَبَارَكَ اللَّهُ أَحْسَنُ الْخَالِقِينَ Because before then, he's kind of no different than the rest of the animal world. It's not that he has no holiness and sanctity. It's that there is a human humanness to him that was not happening until that four-month mark when Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala says, Then we make him into, we originate him into a different creation. Be blessed, Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala, the best of creators. We have in geology, for instance, in Surah al uh, 16, Surah An-Nahl, um, 16, 15, verse 15, And he cast in the earth firm mountains, lest it shake under you. And So this is the entire theory today in geology. This is new. The, the idea of the plate tectonics is only since the 1960s if you know if someone is studying and interested in geology, you know, it hasn't been very long that human beings think of the earth as made up of these layers with the last layer, these plate tectonics. So the earth is constantly shifting and the mountains play the role of stabilizing earth. Just like if you had a, you know, a piece of cloth here, I can move it very easily. I can make it slide unless I use pegs, I use nails. I use staples and I put them in place so I can still move it a little bit but those nails keep things stable and not moving. This is what the Quran is saying. وَأَلْقَى فِي الْأَرْضِ رَوَاسِي Pegs, nails. Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala firmed up this earth and tamida bikum so that it does not shake or move under you. He puts pegs. وَأَلْقَى فِي الْأَرْضِ رَوَاسِي Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala He cast in the earth the pegs, firm pegs, which are the mountains. And tamida become lest it should shake with you. In Surah Al-Naba, which all of you probably know, أَلَمْ نَجْعَلِ الْأَرْضَ مِهَادًا وَالْجِبَالَ أَوْتَادًا So, did we not make the earth a cradle? So this is where the, the mahd, right? The mahd of the child that moves the crib. There's a rocking movement. There's peace and tranquility in the mahd. But at the same time, there's movement so that he falls asleep. Right? أَلَمْ نَجْعَلِ الْأَرْضَ مِهَادًا وَالْجِبَالَ So that it doesn't move too much. وَالْجِبَالَ أَوْتَادًا الْوَتَدْ is the peg, is the nail. And so we made the mountains nails. Other verses in Surah An-Nur. These verses talk about clouds and cloud formation and hail and lightning. Have you not considered that God drives the clouds? So this is the wind. Drives the clouds. Alam tara anna Allah yuzji sahaba. This is Surah An-Nur, verse 43. Then he joins them together. Right? Thumma yu'allifu baynahu, thumma yaj'aluhu rukama. So he lumps the crowds together and stacks them into a heap. Then he makes them as a stacked heap and you see the rain come forth from their midst. Today, if you study this phenomenon, you understand how the rain is formed. This is exactly, these are the steps. What the wind does, how it moves the formation, the newly formed crowd, clouds, until there's enough of them. Because they've been stacked together, there's enough density that you will get precipitation out of it. And then, and he sends down from the sky, from the mountains of clouds, therein hail. 
wherewith he strikes with it whomever he wills. Now the Quran is talking about hail, but then it says something strange, and which he turns away from whoever he wills. The flash of its lightning nearly takes away the sight. The lightning of what? The Quran seems to be saying the lightning of the hail, which now they're discovering that hail creates or causes lightning because of an ionization process, because there's a change in the electrons. You have a, a positive and a negative that result in the electric discharge of a lightning. Okay? So, as again, here the point I'm trying to make is not to focus on the content, right? I'm, I'm asking you to go try to go beyond it. The deep seas. The Quran in one verse in Surah, again in Surah An-Nur, verse 40, 2440, it says, أَوْ كَظُلْمَاتٍ فِي So it's talking about the state of someone who is an unbeliever, who has rejected faith, or the unbeliever's state is like the darkness in a deep sea. ظُلُمَات, the darknesses in a deep sea. Very meticulous wording. ظُلُمَاتٍ فِي بَحْرٍ It is covered by waves, above which are waves, above which are clouds. Darknesses, one above another. If he stretches out his hand, he cannot see it. Okay, so what are these waves upon, upon which there are other waves, upon which there are clouds? So if there are clouds, it's because there are clouds over the ocean. Okay, so that part we understand. So there are waves under an open sky, and it's a deep sea. What about these other waves? Now, in today's world, they say that there are waves. If you look at very deep oceans, there are layers of waves. Because of the level of density, the pressure of water, you reach a certain point, and these points are very well known. If, you are, if you're using certain types of images, you can see that there are waves within the, the water. Because of the pressure of the water, if you go very deep, you get other, it's like a new ocean happening. Because of the weight of the water, the pressure of the water. Over there, there are new waves. The Quran here is talking about someone who is that deep, so that when he extends his arms, his hand, it's so dark that he can't even see it. So that distance, you would not be able to see. So we're talking about a very deep ocean, and that is actually the case. If you go beyond the 1,000 and more meters in the in the ocean, that is actually the type of complete and entire darkness that exists there. And if you go that deep, the Quran is talking about different types of waves. Okay? In other verses, in, in, uh, in Surah An-Nahl 68 to 69, the famous verses that talk about honey of bees. وَأَوْحَى رَبُّكَ إِلَى النَّحْلِ And your Lord inspired the bee, saying, Make your home. Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala is talking to the bee instructing the genetics and the hardwiring of the bee, make your home in the mountains and on the trees and of that which they build and live in. So human beings. Then eat from every kind of fruit and follow meekly the ways of your Lord. There issues from its bellies a drink of diverse hues in which there is a cure for the people. There is indeed a sign in that for a people who reflect deeply. Okay, so that, we could talk for a long time about this, but again, these are examples I'm giving, images. Some verses about how the universe began. 
in some verses in Surah Fussalat, Thumma ila samai wa dukhanun. And then he turned to the heaven and it was smoke. Wahiya dukhan. Thumma qala laha wal ardi tiyatawan al kara. In Surah Al Anbiya. Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala in verse 30 he says Will those who disbelieve not consider or not see that the heavens and the earth were interwoven were sewn together and so we tore them apart we split them apart and then it goes into another topic it says and we made out of water everything that is living, every living entity or every living being. Okay, afala yu'minun. Then will they not believe? So here the idea, when we look at these different verses, we talked about embryology, we talked about the cloud formation, the waves in the oceans, we now talked about beginning of the universe or what's happening in the bellies of the little bees and that it has a cure. Of course there is a part of this that has to do with understanding the phenomenon itself. And as we said, we can add to it and say, this is going to help us believe, right? That you understand this is truly from Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala. How could this man in the desert 14 centuries ago have known any of these things? This is stuff that humanity is just discovering and we're not even done understanding many of these things and we're sure that as science is going to progress, we're going to keep discovering more and more. But here there might be I think, another layer. The other layer is that isn't there in the tone of these verses. When the Qur'an talks about something, isn't it to bring your attention to it and do something about it? Is this not a call for people to specialize in these fields? If I don't understand anything about how oceans function, what do I understand from this verse? That there are darknesses and it's all dark and it's so dark that this person, when they put their hand, they can't even see. But the person who has now understood what's happening deep in the oceans, they have a new appreciation for this verse. Someone who's a beekeeper is going to have a completely different appreciation for the verse that talks about what Allah told the bees to do, what he revealed to the bee. And how the honey comes out in different hues, in different colors. Why? Why does the Quran make a point to mention that it's coming out in different colors? Is it just an aesthetic thing? Think of beauty that there's different colors? Or is there something else? And the Quran then adds, and there's a cure in it for the people. So it's not an anecdote. It really is a cure. Allah has created it as a cure. But a cure may also be, you know, something that comes with side effects. So we need to understand this. A cure means there's a disease and you're solving. Or can I take it at any time or not? Okay, this is all, well, I'm not saying any of these things. I'm saying when someone looks at these verses, when someone looks at a verse that says that the heavens was smoke, or that the heaven and the earth were one entity and they were split apart, is the person who has spent years studying cosmology and astrophysics and they understand the different versions of the theory of the Big Bang, for instance, do they understand these verses in the same way as someone who doesn't, who has no background in any of these areas? The person who has studied human history, will they understand the verses that talk about the 
rise and fall of civilizations in the same way. And this is where you see that, yes, the information provided in these verses in itself, that's amazing and that's great. In fact, it's even miraculous. Two, in these verses, it's as though the verses are telling us we're giving you keys. We're giving you ways of understanding and therefore eventually using nature. All of these verses have to do with nature. This is for your own benefit in this world. It doesn't even have anything to do with the afterlife. That you understand that honey is a cure. Right? So there is your ability to use this world to your own benefit. And of course, in there implied is the recognition of Islam that it is important to develop this world and work in this world. So therefore, go and acquire that knowledge. And therefore, go and specialize in all these fields and others. And this is where you see a lot of people who connect with Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala, with the Creator, to the point of having mystical experiences, what we call the religious experience, by focusing on things that others consider just nature or just science. It looks like it's dry, it's just pieces of information. Someone who just spends time understanding something in nature. And this happens a lot to, for instance, some quantum physicists and astrophysicists who spend time studying the elementary particles, for instance. And you see that in some of their writing and some of their books. And it could be people who study things like as simple as how a specific animal has been created. Because they spend 20 or 30 years specializing in that animal. And they become a world authority on that animal. This is where you see like the Qur'an when it talks, for instance, in Surah Al-Ghashiyah, it says, أَفَلَا يَنظُرُونَ إِلَى الْإِبِلِ كَيْفَ خُلِقَتْ Very simple. Will they not look at the camels, how they have been created? That's it. The next verse talks about something different. وَإِلَى السَّمَاءِ كَيْفَ رُفِعَتْ That verse is sa- just says, will they not look at how the camels have been created? In Surah Al-Ghashiyah. I think verse 17, if anyone is writing the reference. If someone doesn't know anything about camels, you say, okay, so the Qur'an says, you know, camels are created in a special way. If you spend time studying the camels, you see that, no, no, their hoof is very special. It carries all that weight, and yet it doesn't sink in the sand. And in order to live in that environment, they have to have two pairs of lids, eyelids. And they close one and they can still see, so the sand doesn't go into their eyes, and so they can walk easily into a sandstorm. And they can completely close off their nostrils so that no sand goes inside. And they can control their body temperature. And they can specifically control the temperature of their brain. And they can keep water for between four and seven days without drinking by controlling their body temperature and controlling how they perspirate so that they don't sweat if they don't need to. They understand the environment, how they eat, the way their, their capillaries and their veins are structured in their body allows them to do a lot of this. They have very specialized kidneys that allow them to regulate even the way they excrete the food after they eat all of this so that they keep the vitamins and minerals and everything that they need from their food and especially the water. And these are big animals and they can go on for four to seven days without drinking a drop of water. Right? And so on and so forth. We can keep talking about this. If someone specialized, I didn't specialize. I know a little bit about camels. 
And this was the reality of the Arabs of that time. But if someone is able to look at this from that point of view, with that type of specialization, it has a completely different meaning than someone who doesn't have that background. If you don't spend time specializing or going out of your way to acquiring more knowledge about it, then it just stops as at, let's look at how camels are created. That's cool. Okay, camels are created in a cool way. There's something special about them and it stops there. Or you can spend time and watch documentaries and read books just about you know, specific body parts of a camel and how they've been perfectly adapted for the type of environment that they're in. Completely different way of understanding the world. And one of them leads to nothing. And the other one could lead to a mystical experience. As we see with many, many of those who specialize in certain fields and they study nature. And we also see the opposite. Where people get so lost in the details of nature that they think that's all there is. And they don't see what's behind it. And they say, that's it, nature did all of this, and it stops there. This is evolution, or this is nature, blind nature, the blind watchmaker, as they say, and so on and so forth. So I thought that I would close this off very quickly with a recap of the principles, as we did in the previous sections, to extract the principles that we've had in the last two, in this session and the previous session. These are the principles that we can take out from the verses of the Holy Qur'an that we went through. And inshallah, you recognize them very quickly. First principle, those who know and use their aql and those who do not know are not equal and they are not even comparable. That's principle one. Second principle, knowledge and aql have a holiness and a sanctity in themselves. And we can add to that, Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala identifies himself as the first teacher. Therefore, there is something special about being a teacher and teaching. And two, this is one of the main functions of prophets, and therefore religion. And inshallah, we're going to talk about what is religion? Why is it sent to humanity? What are the purposes of religion? But certainly teaching is among the most important roles of prophets. In the essence or the nature of the human being, there is something that ties the human being to knowledge. The human being is curious. There is something in the human being that wants to go towards knowledge, that wants to know. This is not random. Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala put that in us for reasons. And so, therefore, we must ask ourselves, what does it mean if a human being leaves that unfulfilled? If that need to know, to go towards that which I don't know and I really need to know. And if you remember in the previous series where we talked about the three big questions, these are the ones that form your worldview. And ultimately, these are the three questions you're trying to understand as a human being. And everything else falls under them. Where do I come from? What am I doing here? And where am I going? Everything comes back to these three questions. And what we call usul al-deen is nothing more than these three questions. This is your worldview. This is the lens through which you see the world. Okay, and this is the idea of the curiosity that Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala has put in you. It's not a random thing. This is your fitrah. Okay, and the next principle. Therefore, if what we said is true, therefore the distinction of a human being, the merit of a human being, 
is based on your humanity, your humanness, is based on your, or tied to, the knowledge and the aql that you have. The more knowledge and aql that you have, the more you fulfill that need in you correctly, as Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala intended, in alignment with your nature, the more human you are. In opposition, if a human being is not aligned and is not fulfilling that need fully or properly, then equals not fully human. And we saw how the Holy Quran says, therefore you're back to your basic biology, you're like cattle, you're like animals, in fact you are worse, as we saw in the verses. Knowledge and aql, we saw that they even apply to the ranks of prophets and the distinctions of prophets. Even they were after knowledge. And we saw that in a number of prophets. We saw it with Yusuf, Dawood, Sulaiman. The whole story of Musa and Al-Khidr when Musa goes to learn from someone is after knowledge. And even Prophet Muhammad Sallallahu in fact we ended with this, where Allah Subh'anaHu Wa Taala tells him, وَقُلْ رَبِّ زِدْنِي عِلْمًا After all of this, Allah Subh'anaHu Wa Taala orders the Prophet, commands him to seek more knowledge and to increase in knowledge. And then we said there is an importance of knowledge for virtues. And we gave as one example, patience and resilience. And we saw it applied in the story of Prophet Musa salam, where when he went to Al-Khidr and he told him, allow me to follow you so that I may learn, so that you may teach me from that which you have been taught. Al-Khidr told him, you can't. And how can you have the patience to withstand what you're going to see when you have not been given the knowledge of that which you will see. And this is where you see that because I have a specific type of knowledge, it's going to give me the resilience and the patience to go through certain things. And the person who doesn't have that knowledge is not going to be able to go through that and have the patience to go through it. Even at the level of the way we live. And so if you think, you know, there are people who can withstand difficulties and hardships in life and and other people crumble a lot faster. Based on this, we know that knowledge plays a role there. This person knows something that this other doesn't. And you can even apply that to all the way to Imam Hussain. There's a knowledge there that allows them to go through this, that someone else, because they don't have that knowledge, they can never reach that type of sacrifice or go through that type of hardship. We also saw in the verses, another principle, we're at, I think, number eight. Knowledge and aql, as important as they are, they were not enough. We saw in the verses that there is tazkiyah, for instance. There is a need for purification. The full human being, as much as knowledge and aql are important, there is a need for Right? So the prophets are sent to teach. They are sent so that there is a learning of the book, a learning of the laws of Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala, of the wisdom, the virtues. But there's also a purification that is required. And we've been calling it an ethics of knowledge. Ultimately, true knowledge and aql are supposed to lead. Ultimately, if it is true knowledge, if it is true aql, the criteria is that it leads to getting closer to Allah. Which knowledge? Any knowledge. It could be the knowledge of history, it could be the knowledge of the camels, and it could be the knowledge of Tawheed, and the knowledge of Quran, and the knowledge of Fiqh. The end result of that knowledge is that you are closer to God ultimately. And that's why we saw in the verses, 
There are people who because of their knowledge, the Quran says, and is the one who knows at the end of the verse. The beginning of the verse is, is the one who stands in the middle of the hours of the night praying to his Lord and seeking his mercy and his forgiveness. In Surah Al-Zumar 39, I believe, or in the verses of Surah Al-Imran, those who remember the signs of Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala, qiyaman wa qu'udan wa ala janubim, in all states they remember God, all of it has to do with knowledge and aql. But ultimately it's leading to people, after all this knowledge, the ultimate result is that this is constantly little steps of knowledge leading to proximity to God. That's when you know the knowledge is going in that, in the right direction. And of course, always the opposite. By, by opposition. And this is why we connected it. We said the verses that talk about the ultimate purpose of the human being being created. Some verses seem to say that it is to worship. But then we went through the narrations and we saw that even that is explained further by the narrations when they say to worship means to know God. And it's when, when you know God that you truly worship God and you do not worship anyone else. Imam Hussain said in the last lecture that we talked about. And we have this in the Holy Quran. So you might think that it's all about blind worship. But then the Quran says the worship, the sign that you are worshiping Allah is that you fear God and you have an awareness of God, right? You have taqwa, you have khashya. Otherwise, just performing the mechanical rituals without feeling anything does not lead to anything. That's not worship. So this is where the Quran says, those who truly have khashya. Those who have the awareness of God are Those of his servants who are scholars, who are knowledgeable, who have knowledge, are the ones who have khashya. This brings us back to the camels. This brings us back to those who have the knowledge that leads to, it doesn't matter knowledge of what, so long as it's leading to khashya. The ibadah is leading to something more. That's the tafakkur, that's the khashya, that's the taqwa. We saw that in all of the verses. Okay? And then, of course, so that you know what? We talked about a number of different types of knowledge. One of them is just so that you have the basic religious teachings. But then we said even beyond that, the Quran, when it talks about the religious teachings, it gives reasons for having them. It says so that you have them based on knowledge and aql. So you have them so that you understand why God is giving you these specific teachings. We, we saw the examples for wine and gambling. We saw this with other verses of the Quran where there is tatafakkarun. The point of this so that you think and reflect deeply on the reasons why we have made these into laws for you. It's not just random blindly following instructions and laws. Teaching must be based on aql. And we saw the Qur'an basically rejecting a belief that is not based on aql, that you have thought about, that you've spent time really understanding, analyzing, and reaching your own conclusion. That's the belief that the Qur'an wants. A belief that is right or wrong, but simply because blindly following others was not given any value. That's one. And on the other side, if it's based on conjecture, I'm not sure, I just think, the Quran said that's that's Just conjecture, my guesswork makes me think my gut feeling is maybe this is right, this is wrong, and it stops there, and I don't spend time being serious about my 
trying to reach a truth for myself, that's not good enough. Not for the things that matter, like your beliefs, your true beliefs, God, or the three big questions, right? And then, of course, we give other examples, the types of knowledge that are explicitly mentioned in the Qur'an as being very important, knowledge of the afterlife, knowledge of the role of prophets and prophets themselves and their prophethood and missions, knowledge of God and his attributes. We talked about that. Knowledge of the world, the nature of this world. You have to know the nature of this world. You have to understand that everybody is just running after things that they covet to, to, it's kind of like a, the, the rat race, as they call it, right? That you're trying to get more wealth and more children and more, you know, bling and more glitter. The Quran says zina, right? Ornamentation and glitter and, and things that are not really having any true value in themselves. The purpose of the revelation of the Holy Quran and the revelation or bringing about of a religion, we saw entirely, the entirety, at the end, all of this is what? So that you do one thing. The point of all of this is that you think deeply, you reflect deeply. This is the point of religion. The verses of the Quran, again, we give humankind, we, get, we, we set the examples to humankind, we share the parables with humankind so that they and so on and so forth. And then the purpose of creating this world and everything in it, and this was the idea of tasheer. All the verses that talk about, don't you see that all of these are signs that Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala has given you? We've made them subservient to you so that you may understand them, and therefore you think about them and you study them, right? So this, this was a discussion we had where we said we really have to think about just this fact that a human being is actually able to analyze and understand the nature of this world, the laws of this world, and how they work. There's a reason for that. Allah did not have to create the world this way, but He did. <laughs> Please close the door. Then we saw today the quick focus. One is that in, this, in the very methodology, the steps of explaining of unfolding of this religion to humanity it began with the first step was reading writing which i'd like to refer to as a knowledge revolution this is what islam was and what this is what islam is supposed to be it's a revolution of teaching of knowledge of aql we saw today the importance of what we can maybe call professional competence, professional qualifications, and making those the main criteria, and recognizing those. So Islam recognizes professional competence. It wants people to be in the right place, based on their competence. This is important for building communities, for building societies. This is very important. Appreciating the perfection of the order. So we saw a number of verses. Basically, all of these verses are talking about an extremely specific, meticulous order that Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala has put in nature. But this is not truly appreciated unless you have the knowledge background that allows you to truly understand just how 
magnificent or how perfect or how precise this order is, and therefore connecting with God. Otherwise, you don't see the power in it. You don't see the power of God in this. You don't see the wisdom of God, the mercy of God, the knowledge of God in what you're looking at. It just stops at the superficial level of this law or this being or this atom that you're looking at. And then, as we said, there's a clear call in the Holy Quran. I think when we look at all of these, behind these verses, there's a call from these verses to specialize in these fields and beyond. To become specialists who look at nature. To specialize in nature. To specialize in the humanities, including human history, for instance. Isn't it sad? Isn't it unfortunate that in the majority of the cases, the examples that I gave, let's say a theory like the Big Bang, or the bees and their honey, or how clouds work, or how geology is structured on Earth, and so on and so forth, the few examples we gave, embryology. Isn't it sad that this is the importance given to these things in our religion, but for the majority of the cases, I don't want to say all the cases, I may not know about a case, to prove the miraculous nature of the Qur'an and to prove just how precise this order is, do we rely on Muslim thinkers and Muslim scholars? No. We go to the experts in those fields and all of them are non-Muslims. Some of them are atheists, some of them are theists, some of them are believers, some of them are not. Some of them end up becoming Muslims, but they're not specialists in Islam. They were not Muslims to start with. We need to think about that. This opens the door to a much more serious question, which is, we are good at catching it after the fact. Why are we not the ones leading this? When we see all these keys, when we see all these indications, these arrows that the Qur'an is, is using to point at certain things, why are we not the ones going after and finding those, even though they might be theories, in some cases they're discoveries, why are we not the ones leading the pack? Why, why are we not the ones leading humanity here? What's missing? We're catching it after the fact, which is fine. It's better than nothing, that we at least know that it's there and we, can, we know where to find it. But there are some serious issues and it brings us back to the question that have we really understood and have we really appreciated the importance that our religion gives to knowledge and to aql? Or have these taken a secondary role for many other things, all sorts of other things? And that's why we have fallen behind. And that's why we have to rely on others and depend on others for all sorts of things. Okay, so I'll stop here for now. If you allow me maybe 20 minutes quickly to go through a quick overview of the life of Imam al-Baqir alayhi salam, and then maybe we have a bit of time for a quick discussion at the end. So, if okay with you, we just start right away. Otherwise, I'd give a little break, but so that we don't get stuck with the, with the salah. أعوذ بالله من الشيطان اللعين الرجيم بسم الله الرحمن الرحيم In the name of God, most merciful, ever merciful 
And may God's peace and blessings be upon his holy prophet Muhammad and the purified members of his household and progeny. Allahumma salli ala Muhammad wa ali Muhammad wa ajil farajah. We commemorate in these days the sad, tragic martyrdom of Imam al-Baqir alayhi salam, our fifth Imam, Muhammad ibn Ali, Abu Ja'far al-Baqir alayhi salam, the son of Imam al-Sajjad. Imam al-Baqir was born in year 57 after the Hijrah, after the migration of the Holy Prophet. And of course, the first thing that comes to mind, and inshallah, this is supposed to be a very quick overview. Inshallah, we get other opportunities to talk much more in depth about the life of Imam al-Baqir alayhi salam. The first thing that comes to mind, if I say year 57, I think for the majority of you, is that you think about year 61. 61 being the year of the tragedy of Karbala, which means that Imam al-Baqir alayhi salam was born and he witnessed the tragic events of Karbala, although he was between three and four years old. The son of Imam al-Sajjad alayhi salam, who was born and was a child at that time in Karbala. And this deserves its own topic. The mother of Imam al-Baqir alayhi salam was a woman by the name, sometimes referred to simply as Umm Abdullah or Umm al-Hasan. Her name was Fatima. And she was the daughter of Imam al-Hasan al-Mujtaba alayhi salam. And his father, as we just said, was our fourth Imam, Imam al-Sajjad, Zain al-Abideen, Ali ibn al-Husayn alayhi salam. This makes Imam al-Baqir alayhi salam, as they say, the first Alawi, the first Fatimi, and the first Hashimi from two of the same. So he is both the, on his mother's side and on his father's side, the son, the first son of Fatima al-Zahra alayhi salam from her sons, Imam al-Hassan and Imam al-Hussein. The daughter of Imam al-Hassan and the son of Imam al-Hussein. And he is the first of the Alawiyya from two Alawiyyin, from the descendants of Imam Ali, where both the mother and the father are descendants of Imam Ali. And Hashimi, of course, if he is both Fatimi and Alawi, he is a Hashimi. Imam al-Sajjad, Imam al-Baqir spent, as we said, four years, the first four years of his life with Imam al-Husayn, and then he spent the next 39 years of his life with Imam al-Sajjad, his father, basically with him every step of the way. Imam al-Sajjad is martyred, is assassinated, and year about year 95 Hijriya, this is when Imam al Baqir takes over as Imam and he becomes the Imam for the next 19 years. So his Imam lasts about 19 years. And he is finally assassinated, killed by the Khalifa of his time and we'll come back to him a little bit later. Husham ibn Abdul Malik, year 114 Hijriyyah, which means that he lived for about 57 years. Very quickly, just to mention a quick note in passing. If you see the lives of all of our Imams, you see that they gave a huge importance to their spouse selection. All of the mothers of the Imams were chosen very, very accurately, very precisely. And of course, we don't want to say that what happens to a child 
and the type of human being, the kind of human being they become later in life has entirely everything to do with their genetics or everything to do with the manner in which they were brought up. But I don't think anyone would deny that these are very important and significant factors. And so if you want to give all the chances to the child, of course you're going to keep that in mind. And there's plenty to add here, but that's all I will say for now. And inshallah, we can dedicate lectures to the mothers of the Imams to see who these women were. Fatima bint al-Imam al-Hassan alayhi salam, Imam al-Sajjad, her husband, our Imam Zain al-Abideen, he would call her al-Siddiqah. And Imam al-Sadiq alayhi salam, when he talks about her, he says she was unmatched in all of the progeny of Imam al-Hassan alayhi salam. And we know that in the progeny of Imam al-Hassan, there were some incredible people. And he says she was unmatched. She had no parallel. Imam al-Baqir lived in quite tumultuous, extremely eventful times. Inshallah, one day, this is another topic for another lecture, where we can go through all the types and kinds and variety of revolutions or uprisings that happened during his life. There were many. And inshallah, we can talk about those. From the Khilafah side, for those who are interested, so he was certainly in the time of the Khilafah of Bani Umayyah, with especially the dynasty of Bani Marwan. Marwan and Abdul Malik ibn Marwan and his four sons. Right? So Abdul Malik ibn Marwan, and then he had four sons, Al-Walid, Sulaiman, they all took over the Khilafah. They all become became a Khalifa one after the other. So the father, uh, Abdul Malik ibn Marwan, and then his first son, then one after the other, four sons. You have Al-Walid, Sulaiman, and then their cousin came in. This is um, Umar ibn Abdul Aziz. Okay, and he did not last long, for maybe two years to three years, and most likely a lot of historians say he was probably killed because his policies did not really fit with he wanted to re-establish a little bit of social justice and do some good. And we're not saying he was a really good Khalifa, but he tried to do some good things. So he was their cousin, but he was killed about two to three years later. And then the other brother, Yazid, uh, and then finally Hisham. And Hisham is the one who really lived for a little bit longer and ruled for longer. And he was the one who harassed the Imam and was very harsh with the Imam. And he's the one who eventually ordered the assassination, the poisoning of Imam al-Baqir towards the end of his life. So inshallah, one other occasion, we can talk a little bit more about some of this. What we wanted to focus on very quickly, given the theme that we've been trying to address, is a little bit this idea of the role, the knowledge role that Imam al-Baqir played. And this is certainly one of the things that we all should know about Imam al-Baqir. This is the one dimension that he is more known for, unfortunately, but at least we have to secure this and know enough about it. And inshallah, in the future, we can talk about many other aspects of his life and, and his character and personality. So right from the beginning, one thing to know is about his title. What does Baqr mean? Why is he called Al-Baqr? In Arabic, the word Baqr, the first image that comes to mind is when you slash or you poke something to open it, to pry it open. You cut something to open it up. But it doesn't stop there. Otherwise, it would just be poke or slash. So 
the idea of baqr is when you open up something to extract what is hidden behind it, inside of it, that you can't get to. And so you need to perform some sort of action to deep dive into something and take it out. And this is why they say, for example, this is the etymology, the root of the word. And so this is why they say, many say, for instance, the origin of the word baqarah. What is baqarah? A cow. Why is it called a baqarah? It's because the cows were used to labor the ground, to till the ground and plow the ground, which does what? Which overturns the ground, which takes the, the soil that is hidden and deep, it takes it to the surface, right? Through the plowing motion. So this is the idea. And the idea is that Imam al-Baqir this is what he did to knowledge. And this is a direct reference from the Holy Prophet as we shall see, that one of my descendants will be born, that he will be the one who will pry open knowledge and go to the depths of it and take it out for the people. And this is what we want to talk about quickly today, given the theme that we've been talking about. And so the other very quick thing that I thought I would mention about that name is not only that knowledge is important. It's the idea that we've mentioned a few times that you need to go beyond the superficial knowledge. You need to go deeper, right? This is why the, there is this need to pry it open and go beyond and extract it out. It's not something that you can just access, that anyone can access if they try. No, no, you have to go deeper. There is a certain skill required, a certain ability required to go to the depths of that knowledge. If we look at the life of Imam al-Baqir his entire life is an embodiment of this action of prying knowledge open and sharing this knowledge with the people, teaching the people how to do this. And there are many, many examples. I thought I'd mention very quickly just the stories that come to mind here. One of them, for instance, is the role that he played between Muslims and non-Muslims. And in every case, it's opportunities. You see, and in the same thing that we said about Imam Sadiq we said the Imams seize their opportunities. We, un we need to understand the context in which they lived and how they made the best out of it. In the time of Imam al-Baqir he was under a lot of pressure. Husham would keep a very close eye on Imam al-Baqir At times, he would summon the Imam. The Imam lived in al-Madina al-Munawwara. He was born in al-Madina and he lived in al-Madina. Husham and Bani Umayyah in general, their, their uh, holding, you know, their fort and their stronghold is all in Sham, Damascus and in those regions. And the Imam would also travel sometimes to Kufa, but he would be summoned to Sham so that they can keep a close eye on him. He was even imprisoned at some point, but Husham would summon the Imam to keep him close to him. And at some point, Husham wanted to travel his land, his kingdom. During the time of Hisham bin Abdul Malik, the kingdom of Bani Umayyah and generally of Islam expanded to its largest limits. And so Hisham summoned Imam al-Baqir and they were traveling to Sham. And they reached a point, the Imam was sitting outside with some people and they noticed mountains and there are people starting to gather around that mountain. And the Imam asked, what is happening there? And so they told him there is a man a Christian monk or priest who lives in those mountains, in the caves of those mountains, and he comes out only once a year. 
And he comes out and he shares knowledge. And so people gather, the Christians gather around him to learn that knowledge from him. And then he goes back into his isolation. And, and he said, does he have knowledge? They said he's considered the most knowledgeable. And so the Imam said to his, those who were with him, his companions, let's go meet the man. And so Imam al-Baqir went to meet this man. The man came, I will spare you all the details, the man came out, he saw the Imam, right away he recognized that this is not one of his followers, he's never seen him before, he doesn't fit the pattern, the mold of everyone else, so he asks him, are you of the Christians or are you of the nation of Muhammad? He tells him, I am of the nation of Muhammad. He tells him, are you of their scholars and those who carry knowledge or are you of their ignorant ones? And the Imam tells him, I am not of their ignorant. And so he starts asking some questions. You have to remember in Sham the, the Christians were very present, but there was a little bit of a tension. Bani Umayyah were very close. They gave a lot of space, starting from Muawiyah and onwards. They were very close and they used the Christians a lot and there were relationships with the Romans and so on and so forth. So there's a whole dynamic going on that we don't have time to get into. So very quickly, the Imam says, the, the man tells the Imam, do you want me to ask you or do you want to ask me? The, man to, uh, the Imam السلام, told him, your choice, do whatever you want. You want to ask me or you want me to ask you? So already this was not something that this man expected. It means that this man is, has so much confidence that he's okay either way. So he tells him that let me ask you. And then he starts asking. So his first question, he asks the Imam, what is the hour of the day? What is the, an hour during a day that is neither of the day nor the night? The Imam tells him it's the hour, the first hour of dawn, between the time that the first light comes out till the time that the sun rises. That hour, the Imam says, this is an hour sent to, to earth from Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala, from, from heaven, from paradise. And so there's a lot of meanings to this, but let's just keep it at that. That's the first question. The man starts telling him, but you said that you, you're not a scholar. He said, I never said I'm not a scholar. I said I am not of the ignorant. The man asks his second question. He tells him, if you say that there are people who go to heaven, and in heaven people are eating and drinking, are they going to need to relieve themselves, to defecate? And whatever you answer, you need to be able to prove it to me from this world, in this world, in a convincing way. So the Imam tells him, it's very simple. Your question, another time, your question is very simple. The example is the fetus. The fetus eats and drinks and he does not defecate. He is in the womb of his mother. And so the man says, again, you said you are not a scholar and here you are answering. Let me ask you the one question. He tells him, what if, can you tell me about a man who approaches his wife and they have, she becomes pregnant and she gives birth at the same time to two people. They are born at the same hour and they live together and they are, they die at the same time and they are buried in the same grave. And yet one of them was 50 years old and the other was 150 years old. And the Imam once again said, your question is very simple. You are talking about Uzair and Azra. Uzair, who is mentioned in the Holy Quran, as the man who walks into a village in Surah Al-Baqarah and he sees it in ruins, he says, how will Allah raise all of these after this ruin? So Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala makes him die for 100 years. 
right? الذي مر على قرية وهي خاوية على عروشها قال أن يحيي هذه الله بعد موتها فأماته الله مئة عام ثم بعثه قال كم لبث قال يوما أو بعض يوم قال بل لبثت لبثت مئة عام فانظر إلى طعامك وشرابك لم يتسنى وانظر إلى حمارك so Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala showed him what happened to his food as a miracle Allah kept the food preserved while the donkey had completely uh, uh, you know melted and decomposed and so Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala brought the, monkey, the, the donkey back all of the parts of the donkey back in front of him so that he understands how resurrection happens this is Uzair and some narrations we are told this is one of the prophets of Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala well he was born a twin so Imam al-Baqir tells him he was born a twin and their names were Uzair and Azra they were born at the same time and they lived together until they were 30 and then when they were 30 Allah put Uzair to death for 100 years and when he came back to life his brother was now 130 years old and he was still 30 and then 20 years later they both died at the same time and they were eventually buried in the same grave but one of them was 50 and one of them was 150 years old and so he told them I never want to see you again and he was frustrated with the people who brought him and they allowed this man to enter and to embarrass him and to frustrate him in front of everyone but anyways this is to highlight the, the roles that the Imam played and wherever he had an opportunity to show that you know this man is not really using real logic to bring people to him and the way he lived in the mountains and all of that there's a whole story there and then there are the stories of the polemics and the debates of the Imam with people like the Khawarij within the sects of Islam we don't have time to give too many examples so let's talk about the Khawarij there's a man by the name of Abdullah ibn Nafa ibn al-Azraq Nafa ibn al-Azraq is one of the people who created a faction of Khawarij these are the people who revolted against Imam Ali السلام, after the battle of Safin between Imam Ali and Muawiyah at the end of the battle there's a group of people who were already always there the Holy Prophet had identified some of them in his own life as being hypocrites and being people who will cause much mischief later and finally they became a group that people could identify called Al-Khawarij and they claimed to be against everyone but of course they sided with Muawiyah and assassinated Imam Ali السلام, right before Imam Ali had gone to war with them and so he exterminated the majority of them during his life this was the battle of Nahrawan for those who are interested the three battles of Imam Ali the last battle was the battle of Nahrawan with the Khawarij this was the son of the man who founded the group called Al-Azariq Al-Azariq is one of the factions of Al-Khawarij so he would tell his followers if you could only find me someone who would ever debate me about the fact that Imam Ali of course he didn't call him Imam Ali was right in fighting the Khawarij they told him what if we bring you someone of the descendants of Ali will you accept he's like where are you ever going to find one of their descendants who has any knowledge and they told him this is the beginning the first indication of your ignorance of saying this here is Muhammad ibn Ali in reference to Imam al-Baqir let us travel to him he would say I will travel to the ends of the earth to debate anyone about this so he came with his group to Al-Madina Al-Munawwara where Imam Al-Baqir resides of course the Imam his door is wide open and he accepted to meet them and have this discussion publicly so he gathered the people when the discussion began Imam Al-Baqir asked the majority of those sitting there he told them whoever knows some of the merits of Imam Ali 
and they can report them, let him stand and recite and report the merits that they know of Ali. So some people started standing and reciting some of these merits. This man, Abdullah ibn Nafi'ah, told Imam al-Baqir I don't need anyone to tell me the merits of Ali. I know them better than anyone. I know all of these ahadith. I know the narrations and I know the merits. So what then is the issue? He told him Ali was good when he was with the Holy Prophet. And Ali was good during his entire life. He turned bad at the end, after the battle of Safin, after the arbitration, and then when he fought the Khawarij. It was after all of these merits that Ali turned bad. Before then he was good, so we have no issue that he had merits before. But towards the very end of his life, he turned bad. Imam al-Baqir told him, Do you know the narration, the hadith of the Holy Prophet when he said, I am going to give the banner to a man that who loves God and his messenger and whom God and his messenger love? Do you know that narration from the Holy Prophet or not? And that it is about Ali salam? He said, yes, I know that narration. He told him, do you believe that God knows what will happen in the future and that he knows everything until the end of times or not? Because if you say that you do not believe that God knows everything that will happen in the in, until the end of times, you have become a disbeliever. You will not believe in God anymore and his knowledge. And he said, no, I believe that God knows everything until the end of times. So the Imam told him, and then when God says that he loves someone, does God not know if this person is going to obey or disobey him in the future? If this person is going to disobey in the future, does God not know that this person will disobey? And how can he declare his love and the love of his prophet to someone if this person is going to disobey in the future? And so, of course, the Imam added, of course, when Ali was fighting the Khawarij, he must have been in a state of worship and obedience to God and not in a state of disobedience. Because God said that he loves him, which means he loves him in the future too. And so the man stayed silent for a while and then he recited the verse, Allah A'lam Haith Yaj'alu Risalata. God knows best where he has placed his message. And so this was an example of his debates with those who were within the religion itself. And then the clarification roles that the Imam played. As I've mentioned in the past, there was a ban on the writing and on the recitation of the ahadith that began right after the death of the Holy Prophet under all sorts of pretexts. And this lasted until year 98 or 99 under Umar ibn Abdul Aziz, who is the one, the Khalifa, who finally lifted the ban. Before then, no one was allowed to formally and officially recite any ahadith of the Holy Prophet, otherwise they would be punished. And if they found anything written, they would destroy them, they would burn them, and you most likely would get punished for that. Unless you were officially recognized by the rulers of the day as having been explicitly given the permission to recite the hadith of the Holy Prophet. So this is happening at the same time. So now that there is finally an opening up and the lifting of the ban, people are interested and people want to know. But there are all sorts of distortions. Now, the ahadith, they haven't been regulated during this time. So on the one side, you have all the fabricated ahadith. And we've talked in the past about all the sources of fabrication. 
including the so storytellers and the books of the Jews and Christians and others that were included as though they are a hadith of the Holy Prophet. And then on the other side, even the Holy Quran and the proper narrations, they were not understood. So people misunderstood completely those things that were coming to them. They would think, for instance, and this is well known, they would think, for instance, in the, the time of Imam al-Baqir that if a man performs wudu and then he touches physically a woman, just touching, it means that his wudu has been invalidated because the Quran says, لَمَسْتُمْ النِّسَاء They understood that as being simply touching. So if you go home after you've performed wudu and you give your mother a kiss, for instance, that means you've invalidated your wudu. And of course, the Imam explained that's absolutely not what the verse means. The Quran simply doesn't want to use an explicit language. It's too noble to use the explicit language. But simply touching does not invalidate any wudu, anyone's wudu. Right? These are not the invalidators of the wudu. These are simple examples to show the type of basic work and knowledge that the Imam was working with and putting back into society after generations of lack, generations of a gap, of a knowledge gap. In any case, and he was teaching the fiqh, he was teaching the usul that later others were credited with having come up with usul al-fiqh. He came up with qa'idat al-faraq, qa'idat al-tajawuz. Basically, it, he gave rules. These are keys. And then you have hundreds or thousands of applications of these keys. Qa'idat al-faraq al-tajawuz basically says, if you've performed, you're praying your salah and you're no longer sure after you've passed this part of the, this section of the salah, you're no longer sure about a previous section, did you perform it or not, then you do not think about it. You ignore your doubt because it's complete. If you perform a salah and you're done, or you, pray, you prayed your salawat and you're done, and the salah is entirely done, or you performed your hajj and it has all the different parts that make up the hajj, and afterwards, you're not sure. Two days later, you're not sure if you performed a part of the Hajj or not. That doubt, you ignore it. This is Qa'idat al-Faraq. You apply the rules of Fiqh coming directly from Imam al-Baqir and later Imam al-Sadiq and others, the other Imams who taught all of this. And all of Islamic Fiqh and Usul al-Fiqh and other Madahib and our Madahib are based on these. Okay? In any case, if you go back to in one of the, the books that I've mentioned to a few of you, uh, Sheikh Baqir Sharif al-Qarashi, when he talks about uh, the life of Imam al-Baqir and his encyclopedia on the lives of the history of Ahl al-Bayt, the second volume, Imam al-Baqir he has two volumes on it. The second volume, he mentions some of the main companions and narrators around Imam al-Baqir He mentions and gives a summarized life biography of 477 people. These are documented in that one book. There are much more extensive books. This is a book for the general masses. 477 narrators, students around Imam al-Baqir narrating his ahadith. This is to give us an, an indication of the type of activity going on in the time of Imam al-Baqir and the type of knowledge expansion and spreading that he was trying to do in society so that we understand the debt we have towards Imam al-Baqir and Islam in general. Muhammad ibn Muslim, one of our greatest scholars in all of the history of the Shia, he was a man from Kufa. He says, I came, we have many, many narrations praising this man, one of our greatest fuqaha in the time of Imam al-Baqir al-Sadiq. The Imams would refer people to, that, to him. 
And they would say, what, if, what do I do? He, they would come to the Imam and they would say, what do I do if I can't have access to you and I have questions? They say, go to Muhammad ibn Muslim. This is the type of credit and, and, and authority and loyalty that this man had. He says, I was in Kufa, I came to Medina to study under Imam al-Baqar He was in Medina for four years. He says himself, he says, I presented and validated with Imam al-Baqar 30,000 narrations. One man, just him, individually, just so that we know what this man was doing, what kind of gift he had, but the type of work, specialized work he's doing with Imam al-Baqar, which means he's ensuring that people understand whether this is a hadith or not and what the hadith means, right? Because he's presenting them to the Imam himself. And then finally, the work of the Imam السلام, in correcting some very important notions. And perhaps none more important than the notion of an Imam. What is an Imam? Who is an Imam? There is unanimity. All the scholars of Islam agree that every Muslim is supposed to believe in the Imam, in their Imam. The Holy Prophet has said that if someone leaves this world without knowing who their Imam is, they are dying the death of the age of ignorance, of jahiliyyah, pre-Islam. Everybody agrees on this. The difference is, how do you apply it? Who is the Imam? Can you get to choose? Is it someone who becomes a ruler? Is it someone that the majority of the people choose as their imam? Is that what an imam is? Do they need to be good? Can they be oppressor? What is an imam? And so this is where we start seeing the role of Imam al-Baqir making it clear what an imam is. Even around him, and this stayed for generations, there are many people who loved Ahl al-Bayt And so they would view, they would see all of Bani Hashim as being the same. If someone is a descendant of the Holy Prophet, of Bani Hashim, all of these people are good and they would love them all. The Imam ensured that people don't believe that. And this was happening and this was causing huge problems. There are people who believed that there are people who were descendants of Imam al-Hasan who started to compete for the Imamah with Ahl al-Bayt There are some of their own brothers who competed for the Imamah. It happened in the time of Imam al Baqir salam, Imam al-Sadiq salam, Imam al-Kadhim, Imam al-Ridha. This continued where some of their own brothers competed for the Imam and they wanted people to follow them. The problem is how can you, when you see what the Imams are and how they talk and who they are, it's impossible to compete. But there were attempts made. And the same thing happened with some of the descendants of Muhammad ibn al-Hanafiyyah, the son of Imam Ali salam. But the brother, the half-brother of Imam al-Hassan, Imam al-Hussein, Muhammad ibn al-Hanafiyyah, a great man himself, but some of his descendants wanted to become the Imams. And so people loved them. They were worshippers, they were knowledgeable, they wanted to become Imams. And people respected them and loved them because they are all the family of the Holy Prophet. The Imam made sure that people understand that Imam means it's a divine appointment with divine knowledge, with divine guidance. There's a protection this is not someone that I can choose. Allah says who the Imam is and who the Imam isn't. And then on the other side, there were the groups who started believing that Imam, an Imam has to be based on the criteria that I come up with, like the Zaydis. Zayd ibn Ali is the brother of the Imam. And the Zaydiyah believed that if the person does not rise 
in a military sense against the oppression of his time, he can't be an imam. And they would reject or find problematic the imam of Imam al-Hassan and Imam Zain al-Abideen, his own father, because he did not rise. And here was Imam al-Baqar not rising. And so the imam explained, you do not determine the function of the imam. If you believe that this is someone divinely inspired, that is it. In any case, so one of the most important roles that Imam al-Baqir played is to bring back the notion that the Shia version of Islam is not marginal. This began after the death of the Holy Prophet. And it kept getting worse and worse with time. Every milestone meant that the Shia were more secluded and more isolated. And the danger with this is that the Imams believe that this is the version of Islam that represents the teachings of the Holy Prophet in the Quran. And it is being hijacked and being replaced by the whims and uh, uh, policies of rulers and ordinary people who are making of religion whatever they want. And so every milestone bringing us to Karbala, for instance, now the view, the label of Shia is becoming very problematic because now it implies that there's an uprising and they're becoming a threat. So what happens with Imam al-Baqir finally, through the domination of his knowledge in society, where everyone unanimously recognizes that he is the most knowledgeable, he is so powerful and so dominant in his knowledge that whether you like him or not, you're going to agree and admit that he is the most knowledgeable and he is the standard of the original version of Islam. And he just happens to be the Imam of the Shia, not only a Shia himself. And this is perhaps one of the most important parts and meanings behind the role that he played. How he took this knowledge that was becoming completely marginalized, completely secluded, because there was another official version of Islam that was taken over. And then you see with Imam al-Baqir coming back in the fold and forcing, imposing another type of Islamic knowledge. This one, we believe, is the one that represents the Islam of the Holy Prophet And this is when, why the Holy Prophet, when he says, one of my children is going to be al-Baqir and he is going to be the one who extracts knowledge the Holy Prophet is giving a guarantee. He is saying when the time comes, when you see that there are divergence of opinions in schools and you don't know where to turn, I'm giving you a guarantee on who is going to be your secure source of knowledge. You want my knowledge? This is where it's going to be found. You know, the Holy Prophet is giving direction. Of course, there's a prophecy in it, but he's giving direction. And that's why it's strange that you have people like Ibn Taymiyyah who says that this hadith from the Holy Prophet was a fabrication that the Shia made up later. There are so many narrations, we're out of time, so many narrations that we have. The Holy Prophet himself says, Imam Sadiq says, Jabir ibn Abdullah al-Ansari was the last of the companions of the Holy Prophet still in this world. He would come to the mosque in Medina wearing a black turban and he would sit in the corner and he would say, Ya Baqir al-Ilm, Ya Baqir al-Ilm. And people would say, he has lost his mind. He was very old at that time. And he would tell them, I swear I have not lost my mind. The Holy Prophet has told me that I will meet a grandson of his who will carry his name and he will have the same traits as the Holy Prophet. 
And finally, he saw Imam al-Baqir when the Imam was a child. And he came and he would sit and he would learn from him. And he would say, I swear that you have been granted just like Yahya and Isa السلام, that in childhood you have still been given this type of divinely inspired knowledge. And you have people like Al-Jahav, a Sunni scholar for instance, who would say about Imam al he wrote, he was born perhaps 45 years after the death of Imam al-Baqir He writes about Imam al-Baqir, he says, and he, Baqar al-Ilma Baqra, and that is the name that the Holy Prophet, his grandfather, had given him. Okay, and so this is not something made up centuries later. This was happening in the life of the Imam. This is what people were calling the Imam in his lifetime. Husham ibn Abd al-Malik, and then we'll finish with that, the Khalifa of his time, at some point to humiliate Zayd, the brother of Imam, Ali, uh, Imam al-Baqir because he knew that he wanted to rise against him, he summoned him to Sham. So he went, and he wanted to humiliate him. So he made him wait. The Khalifa summons you, you go there, he makes you sit outside, and so he goes there and he sits from day until night, and they don't let him in. And the next day, and the day after that, and the day after that, just to humiliate him. And then finally he told them he's going to enter. Husham ibn Abdul Malik, he told them, Zayd ibn Ali is going to enter. When he enters, be disgraceful to him, be disrespectful to him, do not stand up or make any room in this space for him. So Zayd enters and he sees how he's being treated. He just sits wherever he can. And then Husham turns to him and he tells him, what has your brother Al-Baqarah been doing? in reference to Imam al-Baqir Of course, it's a huge insult on the part of Husham. But why is, his, is he using that insult? It's because that was the recognized title and name of Imam al-Baqir at that time. For someone like Ibn Taymiyyah, you can look up any history book that talks about how Zayd was summoned by Husham bin Abdul Malik, and you will see that this incident is dictated or repeated, reported in this way. And so he replied, Zayd, the brother of the Imam, he replied to him, he told him the Holy Prophet himself called him Al-Baqir. And here you are contradicting him and insulting him by calling him something different. But this is normal for you and your entire life. It's just a contradiction to everything that has been said by the Holy Prophet. In any case, eventually, as we said, Husham ibn al-Hakam, uh, Husham ibn Abdul Malik had his governor of Medina assassinate the Imam through poisoning him. When the time came for the Imam and he knew that he had been poisoned, he gathered around himself some of his family members and Imam al-Baqir, Imam al-Sadiq and he left his will to them. And one of the things that he shared with them was that they would spend a part of his wealth on some charities helping out people, and to reward people who are going to recite elegies for him in Mina, because this was the time of pilgrimage, and this is where people gather. And so the Imam al-Baqir is paying for people to recite elegies for him, to remember his death in Mina, so that people spread the news that Imam al-Baqir had been assassinated, poisoned by Husham ibn Abdul Malik. And so when he passed away, Imam al-Sadiq performed the rituals. People gathered, they picked up the 
sacred body of Imam al-Baqir they carried it to his grave Imam al-Sadiq went inside the grave himself crying, weeping heavily he put Imam al-Baqir in his grave and his grave is of course between or uh, beside the graves of Imam al-Hasan and his own father Imam al-Sajjad in the destroyed cemetery of Baqi'ah we ask Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala to help us follow in the footsteps of our Imams and to better understand their lives. Wa sallallahu ala Sayyidina Muhammadin wa ala alihi tayyibin al-tahirin.